You're listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This is the tale of the Christmas Coals. The next figure to rise is one that cuts a dashing figure. With his golden beard, his cloak of deepest green, his tunic of blue and red roses, into the crescent of the hall he steps, and he is the Welsh hero, Taliesin, the king's storyteller, and the legendary prince of bards. He smiles, he raises his hand for quiet, and when the jolly chatter has died, he begins to walk around the circle of tables, and in rich and melodious voice, he begins to tell his tale. It was the time of deepest winter, the eve of the longest night, the beginning of Yuletide when the veil between worlds is waxing to its height. And so it is the custom men since old days knew to furnish now the sacred branch and feed the Yule fire anew. There was once a village in this isle that lay halfway down the valley side it was bounded on one side by the river, on the other by a road, on the other by the magic wood. At the turn of every year, it was the master and the mistress of the village inn, who were the keepers of the Yule time fire. Every man and woman in the village would come to the hall in the inn, where was brought a single broad beam, cut with the master's axe, and bound up with the bales of ash sticks, and dragged through the village square. And on Christmas Eve, through the days of the Yuletide, that log was fed further into the fire and consumed by it. Once the log and the bales of ash were consumed, the last lengths of ashen twigs were broken off and passed out between all the households of the village to be kept for lighting the fire the next year. And so it was that the circle began again with each new turn of the wheel. And never over the course of the twelve days could the Yule fire ever be allowed to dwindle or to go out, for it was by the spirit of the fire that the villagers were protected from the ill fortune wished on them by the devils and dark spirits of winter, from sickness and rot and disaster. And just as the fire was built up, so were the veils between this world and ours, so that on Christmas night, no spirit could walk abroad amongst us. Now the master and the mistress had two children, an elder called Will and a younger called Anne. While their parents tended to the inn, they were seen over by nurse and helped in the kitchens and cleaning the rooms. Will was a mischievous child, who always played tricks on his little sister. When the time of the Yule fire came round, Will and Anne both handed the first sticks to the village alders. Both children loved the roar of the fire, the hearty laughter and food, the rounds of song joined by the villagers year after year. 
but one year was not like the others. The winter was harsher, and the crops that summer had not grown as they had before. They were often hungry. And then, Anne fell ill. She grew pale and weak and had to stay to her bed. The women of the village came to see if they could help her, but their remedies never seemed to help. She ate little. She threw up the sops of bread and milk that nurse fed to her. Her brother Will was distraught, and he grew ever more so as he watched his little sister wasting away. His parents were upset. When they spoke to each other, they were always crying, or they were angry. If his sister did not get better, it seemed like things would never be the same again. The end of all things as he knew them. Will she be okay? Will asked one day to the nurse. Only the spirits know, she said. No way for you to know, unless... Unless, Will demanded. And the nurse told him that sometimes, at the height of the winter, if a man were to come out of the back door and go three times around the house widdishens, carrying before him the wand which stirred the porridge, and was then to walk to the edge of the wood, he might see some strange sight that would let him know. But she said Will was far too young to mess with seeings like that. And Will nodded. But Will's sister only faded more with each passing day, like a flower that wilted down to its last straggling petals. She was eating nothing now, and Will's parents, they no longer looked at each other, or at him. So one night, Will went out of his room. He pulled on his boots, and with the porridge wand he had taken from the kitchen that afternoon, he went outside into the cold and the wind of the night. He was gone for a long time, and then he returned. The next morning, the master and mistress went to their children's room, with dread in their hearts, for they did not expect their daughter to have seen another night through. When they went in, they were shocked and overjoyed to find their daughter fully restored to the rose of life. But in the next moment, they were drowned in sorrow again, because in the next bed, their son Will lay cold and breathless. And then it was Anne who watched as master and mistress wept endless tears and could seem to find only angry words for each other. They often held her very tightly and told her that they loved her, but they would not hold each other. And Anne was afraid, and she was confused. She was lonely. 
She did not understand how her brother had left her or why. She did not know why the nurse was thrown out of the house, even though she was old and had nowhere to go and would have to beg for shelter from the winter. She did not know why her father began to sleep in a different room. Nothing was how it should be. And it remained this way even until the start of Yuletide. First, the master and mistress stopped inviting the folk into the hall. When the first folk came, bearing their ashen boughs, rapping demandingly on the door, the master did let them in, but only sullenly. And sullenly he took his axe, and wordlessly he cut the trunk for the tree. There was no ceremony or celebration, as everybody knew that there should have been. The master's face stayed slack, and the mistress was not there when the gathering began for the yule fire. And when the trunk and the gathered boughs were fed into the fire, the flames licked at the kindling sticks and the trunk, but they caught only reluctantly. The next morning, when Anne came down, the hearth was almost cold. The log was black at the end, but there was only a faint glow. No fire, not really. Anne saw this and she was horrified. She knew what they said, what great bad luck it was for the fire to go out. What a curse it risked. She ran to her father. He looked up at Anne, but he didn't seem to hear her. His eyes were black. He didn't rise from where he sat at the edge of the bed. Anne knew the fire couldn't stay out. She tried to light it herself, but nothing would catch. The hearth remained cold, and so did the coals in its bed. How could she make it warm again? She thought, the fire only ever lit with the branches that the villagers brought. She put on her boots and she went out into the cold morning to get help. The path was a dark slash of trodden soil that twisted its way through the snow to the heart of the village, as she went, the cold white wisps of her breath rose in the air before her, while the chill of the wind seized her right to the bones. She thought about who she could ask for help. First she went to the baker. When they opened the door, Anne tried to explain what was happening. Perhaps, she said, if she could have a coal from the baker's oven, it would restore the heat of the Yule fire. But the baker's mouth was set in a grim line. The winter had been hard, and they had been counting on the Yule feasts to put some food in their bellies. But there was no feast. There was no bread for sharing, he said, and he could give no coal for what the master and mistress owed to him. So little Annie went back to the inn, and when she came back, she had a father's purse. She gave the baker a crown 
and with a shovel he scraped out a single burning coal from his oven and placed it into the young girl's lantern. Anne trudged her way back up the gravel path. Inside the lantern the coal popped and crackled and hissed. But with every step she took, the cracklings grew fainter. The white-hot glow of the coal faded to yellow and dull red, and finally to grey. She was not even halfway home before the coal began to smoke, and she saw that all the heat had gone out of it. So then, Anne tried the potter. When the door opened, Anne started to explain again. Perhaps if she could have a coal from the potter's kiln, it would restore the warm glow of the Yule fire. But the potter shook their heads sadly. The winter had been hard, and there was no feast to fill their family's belly. If there was no branch from the fire for their hearth, and no bread and wine for the sharing, he could give no coal for what the master and the mistress owed him. So Anne gave them a crown, and they agreed then. The potter pulled out a single burning coal from under the kiln, and he dropped it into the girl's lantern. Anne trudged her way back up the gravel path. Inside the lantern, the coal snapped and sizzled and spat. But with every step she took, the sizzling grew fainter. The white-hot glow of the coal faded to yellow, then dull red, and finally to grey. She was not even halfway home before the coal began to smoke, and she saw that all the heat had gone out of it. The blacksmith, she tried then. When the door opened, Anne started again to explain. Could she have a coal from the blacksmith's forge? It would restore the warm glow of the Yule fire, surely. But the blacksmith looked angry, and they ground their teeth. The winter had been hard, and there was no feast to fill his family's belly. If there was no branch from the fire for their hearth, and no bread and wine for sharing, they could give no coal for what the master and mistress owed them. So Anne gave them a crown for the coal, and just as before, she was barely halfway home before the fast sparking fire that lived inside the coal burned out, and Anne stopped dead in the middle of the path, with only a lantern full of cold coal and smoking black soot. She stood there for a moment, feeling empty. Then her eyes fell on a path which crossed her own, a path that wend its way into the dark line of ragged trees at the wood's edge. That was the way to the greenwood, where children shouldn't wander. It was cursed, they said. Those streams and ditches were looked over by the willow-wisps, and there was a witch that lived there. You could only find her sometimes, and she might take you away and you would never be seen again. Sometimes you might hear the cry of a child calling for help, but it was a trick, a trick that the wisps or the witch would play. But she thought 
the wisps light burned on long through the cold of the night. What if the wisps could lend us some of their fire? But how could she catch one? All the stories that she knew about wisps, they would flee away whenever you got near. They said that they were the souls of children who died too young to know their way to heaven. That was why you could hear them crying sometimes. They would run away until you fell into a pool or a ditch, until you got so cold and hungry that you went to sleep and you never woke up. Like Will. Anne stood on the edge of the wood and she squinted into the dark spaces between the trees. Deep inside, things swayed and moved, but she couldn't tell if there was a wisp. What if she got lost before she even saw one? Anne decided. She wasn't scared. She crossed the line of trees into the wood. The snow was sparser beneath the crowns of the trees, She had been walking for quite some time with no sight or whisper of a ghost light when Anne came upon a broad beamed oak whose roots sunk deep into the ground and gathered up the earth beneath its great trunk. She could feel the air here was different, but there was no sign of the wisps. Anne was just making her way round to pass the tree when she heard a gurgling cry, the sound of a child. She froze, but she'd come too far to go back now. She looked around, and there it was. There was a shape huddled beneath the boughs of the tree. An old lady, a crone, curled up as if she was asleep. There appeared to be something bundled in her arms. Hesitantly, Anne reached out with her free hand and she touched the crone's arm. Her eyes flew open and she demanded at once to know what the young girl wanted. I'm looking for the wisps, said Anne, truthfully. Ah, the old lady said, squinting at her. I see now. Your brother came this way. Anne's heart beat steadily. Why would my brother come all the way into the woods? She asked. The witch shrugged. He was looking for you, she said. And now I think you're looking for him. So do as I say. Take you down one of those stones from the tree. Take you my hands, and when I say so, you must stand up on my left foot and look over my shoulder with the stone and see what you can see. Do you understand? Anne said that she did. And while she scrambled up one of the thick roots to take down a stone from the tree, the witch busied herself laying aside her bundle, muttering to it as she did. Now, there you are. No one's going to be forcing you to eat from an eggshell. When Anne returned with a stone from the tree, the crone held out her hands. Anne took them gingerly. She half expected them to be hooked and clawed, but they were very white hands, 
soft as well. And as she took them, the witch started to move around in a slow and dizzy circle. And as Anne followed her, she found it was the strangest thing. But sometimes when she met the witch's eyes, she looked like a handsome old woman with hair as white as spider's silk. Other times, she looked young and her hair was golden like fresh crowns of corn. But however old she looked, Anne thought that she always looked very much like Nurse. The witch span Anne around faster and faster and in tighter and tighter circles until they were so close that they were nearly touching. Then when they came together next, the witch shouted now and hoisted Anne up on her left leg. Anne thrust the hag stone out before her eye and she peered intently through it through the islet in the stone. She saw that the wood behind the old crone was filled with ghostly wisp-like trails of fire. The witch put her down. Won't be long now, she said flatly. Now that you can see. Anne's eyes were wide as she traced the flickering paths of the ghost lights that darted amongst the trees. The air was filled with resonant sounds that fell somewhere between the sounds of bells and children's laughter. There was one light, it strayed away from the others, and it came towards her, as if she had been seen. The light was curious, it circled the trunk of the great oak and paused, alighted just astride one of the high branches. <laughs> Carefully, Anne stepped forward. Please, she said, I don't mean to frighten you or to bother you, but my lantern has gone out, and I wondered if I might be able to borrow yours. There was a tinkle in the air like laughter. The wisp hopped down in the space between the branches to a lower branch. Anne looked hard, but she couldn't see anything through the dark, except the glow of the ghost light itself. Please, she said. Can I... can I see you? The laughter again. Somewhere behind her, the witch was watching, but she didn't speak. Anne didn't care. Please, she repeated softly. It was just a glow at first, like a faint halo of light in the air beside the wisp. But then, like a face advancing out of the mist, it took on a definite shape and form. A ghostly face, thin and pale, with two dancing flames in the spaces where eyes might usually sit. His tongue was fire as well, and as his shape came more clearly into view, so were his fingers and toes. With his dancing eyes he regarded her, and then a peal of laughter rang out clear through the air. Because it was him. It was Will of the Wisp, the King of the Ghost Lights. Anne held her breath. Carefully, very carefully, she placed the lantern on the forest floor between them. 
And once again, she wet her lips and she spoke. Please, our fire is almost out. We shall catch all our death of the winter. Will laughed. <laughs> and waited. Will stared. Nobody moved. Then, tentatively, the Wisp King raised a hand. And with the other, he reached across. And he plucked a single finger of fire from the top of his hand. And he placed it into the hollow of Anne's lantern. He stepped back. Anne took the lantern. The finger of flame danced inside, a strange glow of green and gold. Thank you, she said. And holding the lantern up gingerly in her hands, she turned, keeping her eyes upon it. She took one step, and then another, as Will of the Wisp watched her from behind. She took another step, and then another, and another. And then there was a snap, and a hiss, and the finger of flame went out. Anne's heart fell. Behind her, Will of the Wisp howled with laughter. Anne turned to face him. She went back to the verge where she had stood before. She watched Will for a moment. Then she placed the lantern again in the space between them. Please, won't you be kind? The fire has never gone out before. It will be my fault if it does. Will didn't move while she spoke. He just stayed still and looked at her. Then suddenly he flourished his hand again. This time he tipped back his head and he reached down into his mouth and giggling all the while he drew out his own tongue of fire. He drew it out and then he dropped it straight down into Anne's lantern. Well, Anne, she bowed, she thanked him. She picked up the glowing lantern. She turned. She began to walk away. Will, the oak and the witch, they began to recede behind her in the wood. Then the tongue of flame in the lantern crackled and popped and faded away. Anne squeezed her eyes shut tightly. She held back her tears. Then slowly she forced herself to turn and walk all the way back along the path to the oak. As she came back to the clearing in the wood, the old crone with the spider silk hair cried at the Wisp King. Will of the Wisp, do you have no shame? Even the devil gave you the gift of fire to warm yourself while you wander the earth until doomsday. And all the while, Will was shrieking with laughter. Anne crossed back through the tracks her own feet had made in the snow. 
She was deathly cold now. She was sure that there was frost on her cheeks. She crossed beneath the branches of the oak, and she stood again opposite old Will of the Wisps. Her face spoke of one who is trying to hold back a confusing mixture of anger and hurt. Finally, she said, You're a lot like my brother, you know that? He used to play tricks on me, even when he knew I didn't like it. He used to wrestle with me, even though he knew it hurt. He used to hide my toys and it made me cry. Will was still laughing. I hated it. I hated it when he did that. Sometimes, sometimes I hated him. Her voice echoed through the air. It died away in the far hollow spaces of the trees. Will of the Wisp stared back at her with his large, disc-like eyes, the flames crackling softly inside. There was silence at first, but then there was a sound. Anne was crying. I miss him. She said, I miss him so much. A single tear whelmed up and it started down her cheek, but it didn't make it all the way down. Suddenly, Will had crossed the space between them and with the slender tip of one of his fingers of fire, he caught the tear and it vanished with a sizzle and a hiss. Then Will stepped back and he waved his hands. He gestured toward the lantern that Anne was holding. Confused, Anne placed it down on the ground again. And Will, this time he didn't pluck fire from his hand or from his mouth. Instead he reached up into his left eye socket and he grasped something. He drew it out. It was the burning coal. The coal which old Nick, the devil, had given to him to light his way in the dark between worlds. The coal that burned with an unquenchable heat. He drew it out and he placed it ever so carefully into the heart of Anne's lantern. Anne sniffled. Thank you, she whispered. For answer, Will laughed, and he began to dance about, laughing. As Anne picked up the lantern, he danced about the branches of the oak, lifting himself upward into the air until once again all that could be seen was a flickering candle of light. And as she was making her way out of the clearing, Anne stopped to thank the old crone, whose hair was like golden corn again, and who smiled at her kindly. Thank you, she said, and she reached in her pocket for some of her father's coins. But the old crone put her hand over the girl's pocket and she said, Peace be with you, child. Go with my blessing. She walked up the long path towards the inn, 
and the coal flared brightly in her lantern. In the flame, it did not waver or weaken. She knew what she had to do. She gathered the fragments of ashwood from the bundle at the hearth. First, she went to the baker, and with Will's burning torch, she put the heat back into the baker's fire and into his oven. And the baker lit one of the ash twigs and there came the van. Anne and the baker went to the potter and with Will's burning torch they lit the fire in the potter's hearth and under the potter's kiln and then the potter took up one of the burning twigs and they went to the house of the blacksmith. They relit the blacksmith's fires with Will's burning torch and the blacksmith also took up a burning twig and together they all went up the hill to the inn. And once they were there, they placed the coal from Jack's lanterns and the burning tapers from their own fires into the hearth, and the Yule fire roared to life. And the heat of that coal whelmed up and spread through the hearth. It warmed the cold stones and the warmth started to fill the air. The heat and the stones and the air spread through the whole of the house until it reached the rooms of the master and the mistress. The heat spread into their bones and into their chests and they felt something flicker inside them. It came down from their rooms. They spoke to their friends. They embraced Anne, their daughter. And so with the warmth of the Yule fire restored, all the candles in the hall were put out so that the only light came from its glow. And once again, the villagers passed around the wassail cup to drink, and they feasted and they played games of cards and lots in the light of the burning beam. They sang songs, they told stories. As each of the withies that tied the log snapped, the party cheered and raised a toast. Each of the women had chosen one of the strong withy branches as their own, for that maid was sure to be married in the coming year, they said. The bundled branches fell to the floor and each of the villagers bent to pluck up a fresh branch, which they would take to their homes and keep until the next year when they would light the Yule fire again. In the morning, they would find gifts clustered around the boughs and the branches of the magical log. Late in the evening, Anne went outside. She was carrying with her the lantern and the torch that Will had given her. She walked to the top of the snow-covered bank, and she looked down through the night towards the black where she knew the trees of the dark wood stood. And against the trunks of the trees, she saw the ghostly glow of the wisp lights, gathered, watching. She saw Will's long, wide smile and his laughing eyes. And she thought she saw the old crone too, standing on the edge of the wood, nursing the changed child in her arms. Anne knew that they could not come close to her, not while the Yule fire burned. And she knew in her heart, however often she left cream or butter or beer outside, and how often she returned to find the plates empty, she'd never set eyes on Will or the crone again. She whispered a thanks, and she placed Will's torch on the ground, there on the crown of the hill. 
Then she turned and she went back inside. She felt happy for the first time in so many days. She saw how the master and mistress seemed once again to grow into their former selves. As the evening had worn on, they shared words with each other that grew from scattered words and glances like solitary raindrops to the strong flow of a stream and then a river until it seemed that they could bear once more to hold each other's eyes. And now as Anne returned to the hall of the inn, she looked over. She saw them embracing each other. For what they knew in their hearts, though they still carried the greatest sorrow, was this. Life is like the swift flight of a sparrow or wren through the house where you sit at supper with your friends and family by the light of a blazing fire, while outside a winter storm rages. The sparrow, flying in at one door and immediately out the other, is safe under the roof. But after that brief passage, she vanishes out of sight, passing from winter into winter again. Whence it came before or where it follows after, no one can truly know. And so it is we must hold tightly to the warmth and the light that we have. And as long as we are able, never to let the fire go out. There's scattered clapping, murmurs of appreciation in King Arthur's hall. The king inclines his head towards Taliesin, acknowledging the worthiness of his tale. But his eyes still sweep the hall up and down and round about, and he looks at least a little disappointed. A tale has been told, yes, a wonder related, but still he feels the absence of a great deed or adventure on this occasion. But the people are hungry, and so with a sigh of resignation, he nods to his castellan, Sir Kay, to ring the bell that will signal the feast can begin. Sir Kay raises his hand to strike the bell, but then he freezes, for another sound is rising suddenly to split the chamber's murmuring warmth. A far-off sound, a horn, a supernatural blast that charges the air and shrivels the heart in the chest. You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This tale was called The Christmas Coals. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott. The theme tune was composed and performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music from Brendan and Derek Feister on Bandcamp, and additional music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. Today's tale was based on a story from the book Midwinter Tales, collected and told by Taffy Thomas and published by the History Press. Taffy very graciously gave us permission to use the bones of the story presented in that book, 
Our version of the story is very different, inspired in various parts by the folklore of the Yule Log Fire, the tale of Will of the Wisps, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, the Maori story of how Maui brought fire to the world, and the conversion of King Edwin, as related by the English monk, the Venerable Bede. If you'd like to tell this version of the story, you're welcome to do so, but please do mention us and tell your audience about lore and legend. To learn more about the folklore behind this tale, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. Thank you to Paul Jackson for your regular contributions, which are much appreciated. You too, listeners, can help us to keep improving lore and legend by paying as little as a dollar or 50p towards the time, effort and monetary costs of producing an episode of the show. Visit the website to find out more. A Merry Christmas to all you beautiful story folk, and thank you for listening. Join us tomorrow to hear another tale from Camelot and the Christmas Court of King Arthur. <laughs>